Yasin is a Makki Surah. I have not explained this to you before. There are these two terms, Madani and Makki. Madani and Makki. Normally people seem to think that this means that Makki means that the Surah was revealed in Makkah Mukarramah and Madani means the Surah was revealed in Medina Manawara. Actually, Makki means that the Surah was revealed... That's one position. Another position is that Makki means that the Surah was revealed before Hijra. And Madani refers to those verses that were revealed after Hijra, even if they were revealed in Makkah, after Fatih Makkah. But if they were revealed after Hijra, they will be called Madani. The reason for this is what we call Taghlib, that the vast majority of Makkan revelations took place before Hijra. And then after that, you had a lot of revelation in Medina Manawara. Most of the Qur'an was revealed at that point. You have very few ayat that were revealed after Fatih Makkah in Makkah Mukarramah. So the split then they just call it Makki and Madni. Khair, Surah Yasin is very simple. It was revealed in Makkah Mukarramah before Hijra. So there's no real difference uh, on that issue, on the terminology. Yasin, some people are of the position, some of us here take the position, these are from the Huruf al-Muqatta'at, which are amongst the Mutashabiyat. Huruf al-Muqatta'at are these letters that come in the beginning of several surahs in which we say Allah subhanahu alone knows what they mean. Imam Malik Ramtai was of the position, however, that Yasin is one of the names of Allah. That Yasin is amongst the Asma al-Husna, one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore, obviously, he didn't like that anybody should be named Yasin. As you may find, I don't know in Pakistan, but I knew somebody whose name was Yasin. Others have taken the position that, uh, based on the survival of Ibn Jubair, that Yasin is actually a name given to the Prophet. It's Min Asma and Nabi from the names of the Prophet. Either way, Yasin, even those who take it to be a divine name or a prophetic name, they don't say what it means. It's not like that Yasin Ar-Rahman has a meaning, right? The All-Merciful Al-Malik has a meaning. Even if Yasin is taken to be a divine name, there's no meaning per se offered to it. Similarly, if Yasin is taken to be a name of the Prophet there's no meaning ascribed to Yasin. It is but two letters. In a riwayah, in a hadith mentioned by Abu Dawood and Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, the Prophet said that Yasin is Qalbul Qur'an, Surah Yasin is the heart of the Qur'an al-Karim. And it was a habit of many of the Sahaba, Tabi'in, and early Muslims to recite Surah Yasin in Tahajjud. Imam Ghazali has commented that why is it that Yasin is viewed as the heart of the Quran? Imam Ghazali feels that because there's a lot of mention of the Akhirah in this Surah, and the Akhirah is the essence because the Akhirah is the meeting with Allah, the pleasure of Allah, the dwelling in eternity, being given the eternal attribute. And preparation for the Akhirah is essential in this dunya. So therefore, because of this theme of Akhirah, Imam Ghazali says that that is why Yasin was called the Qalb of the Qur'an. And another hadith mentioned is Sahih of Ibn Hibban. Uh, maybe on Saturday when we do Islamic scholarship, we will mention to you that there are several other Sahih collections of hadith other than Bukhari and Muslim, Ibn Khuzayma, Ibn Hibban are two of the more famous ones after those two. In the Sahib Ibn Hibban, there's a date that the Prophet said that the person, if you recite Yasin near a person who is dying, it will ease for them the process of death. And you will find this is a custom in Pakistan, so it's not a custom that has no basis. It's a custom that is a Sahih date as recorded by Ibn Hibban. And again, that if you recite, uh, if you read Surah Yasin, recite or read Surah Yasin near a person who is dying, the process of their death will become easier. And that can be taken in two ways. That can be taken, umuman means the physical process of death and a spiritual process of death can be easier. Or at the very least, certainly because it is the Qur'an al-Kareem, so certainly the spiritual process of death means the extraction of the ruh by the Malak al-Mawt, by the angel of death, will be easier and will be less painful. This surah begins, Yasin wal-Qur'an al-Hakim, innaka lamin al-Mursaleen, ala sirat al-Mustaqeem, tanzeel al-Aziz al-Rahim. So first, Allah SWT swears, well, Qur'an al-Hakim, he invokes his own Qur'an, right? Uh, and this meaning, Hakim, Hakim is more related actually to hukam, as opposed to hikmat. So many times we translate the Qur'an, Hakim is the wise book. Certainly the hikmat part is there. The hukam part is more dominant in the word Hakim. Hakim means that person who gives hukam. Me, you normally think that Hakim is a wise person. That's also a w- way that the word Hakim is used. 
Either way, the Quran al-Hakim is either the book of wisdom or Quran al-Hakim, the book of hukam, the book of commands, the book of laws, the book that regulates humanity. إِنَّكَ لَمِنَ الْمُرْسَلِينَ So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying, Verily you are from the Mursaleen, you are from the Prophets, you are a messenger. What is being done here is actually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in, as you remember in Makkah Mukarma, in the early period, the Prophet the vast majority of people were denying his prophethood. The vast majority of people in his clan or his tribe or his family or in his city were refusing to accept him. Not that he in any way had any doubt that he was a true prophet, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, number one, is directly negating Right, directly rebuking the kufar mushrikeen, those who deny the nubuah. Allah is proclaiming in His Quran al-Karim, in this revelation, that innaka lamin al-mursaleen, that no verily, and it's addressed the khitab, innaka is the first person, but the, the, it's addressed to the Prophet that know that verily you are from the mursaleen. Do not think that your being a nabi is in any way dependent on people's response to you. You are completely haq and you're completely established as a messenger and prophet. So also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving tisalli to the Prophet Allah sallallahu alayhi mustaqim and you are again on that straight path. You are the ultimate Nabi, the ultimate person whose ultimate footsteps are on the sallallahu alayhi mustaqim as we did in surah, the tafsir of surah Fatiha. Tanzeel al-Aziz al-Rahim and this book that you have, this Quran al is a tanzeel, is a revelation. Because the second thing the Kufar Mushrik can deny that this book that the Prophet claimed to have was not really a scripture, was not revelation. So they were denying prophecy, denying revelation. Allah subhanahu wa in the opening of the surah is himself affirming. And interestingly, the tertib is first Allah ta'ala, although he swears by his book, well, Quran al-Hakim, the first thing he certifies is the nubuah. After that comes the verse, Tanzeel Aziz al-Rahim, that Allah subhanahu wa certifies the Quran as a tanzeel or as a revelation. Right? And that means that where Allah subhanahu wa sends books and he sends prophets, in some ways, prophets are even more important than books. It's a toss-up. There are different ways to look at it. You would say at the end of the day, they would really be equally important. But there's some aspects in which the book of scripture is more important, and there's some aspects in which the prophet is more important. In this particular case, Allah subhanahu wa is highlighting that aspect in which the nubuwa is more important. In other words, the rejection of nubuwa by the kuffar was what was more prominent in Allah subhanahu wa eyes or so to speak in, in the law and that's why he addressed it first then Allah SWT mentions the purpose of prophethood the purpose of wahi and nubuah now what is that لِتُنذِرَ قَوْمًا مَا أُنذِرَ آبَاؤُهُمْ فَهُمْ غَافِلُونَ that to warn a community to do inzar to warn or guide a community whose ancestors whose forefathers were not properly warned and they have become heedless I'd actually prepared quite a bit of this to show you, but we don't have it today, unfortunately. I have to I'll skip around and, and do this. A question arises that earlier, right earlier, just in the surah before, surah number 35, verse number 24, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, that there is not a single community except that we have sent a warner to them. So just a few ayahs before, Allah is saying that there's never a community except that they have received a warner. And here Allah subhanahu is saying, right, is that we have sent you because you, to warn the people who they themselves and their ancestors were never warned. So in the Zahir, this is what Tara'aruz, this is a conflict in the Qur'an al-Kareem, right? Using your akal alone, you will not be able to remove this conflict. And this conflict is occurring literally within one page. <laughs> if it was all Arabic, it could be, depending on the size, the same page of the Qur'an al-Kareem. What's happened here is that the word warner is used in two different ways. Here it's being used for the Prophet So one notion is the Nabina warners. The second notion which is being mentioned here, and again I keep going back to this theme of Salat al-Mustaqim, that Allah subhanahu wa says in the Quran al that that is a path of the Nabiin, Siddiqeen, Shuhada, and Salihin. So another second category of warners are the Siddiqeen of a particular Nabi. The Shuhada and the Salihin of a particular Nabi. So what happened here is that since the time of Ibrahim, the Arabs are basically Bani Ismail, if you will. They're the descendants of Ibrahim and Ismail Islam. Since Ismail Islam, they did not, they were not sent a prophet to them. However, the correct prophets that came after that, their Siddiqeen reached them. So when Allah SWT is saying here that surely a community does not exist, no generation exists in any community except that a warner is sent. In that sense, the warner is a um, is a broad word. It can include the Siddiqeen, and that's why you will find that they were Jews in Medina. They were Arab Jews. They were Arab Christians. 
that means that the Siddiqeen of the Jewish and Christian prophets, the rightful heirs, the followers, the righteous followers of those prophets reached these areas and preached and taught and were able to convert people to Judaism and Christianity. However, Allah subhanahu is saying is that at the prophetic level, this group, this community of the Arabs have not received a warner. And that is linked to scripture also. They have not gotten a scripture in Arabic. And therefore that is why this ummah, that the community was referred to as ummiyin. And sometimes you will find the statement that the Prophet is Nabiyul ummiyin. So what does ummiyin also mean, right? It doesn't just mean they're illiterate. People say they're illiterate. A better English word for this is unlettered. And some people take it to mean this, that they were unscriptured. That they did not have scriptural revelation. They had received the divine messages, but not through prophets, through the followers of prophets. And they had not yet received a scripture. Obviously that community that is scriptureless would be called unlettered or illiterate. This is the Arabic sense of the word ummi. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then is mentioning this notion and that they are ghafil. Right? That now they're also ghafilun, that they never got a prophetic warner, and whatever non-prophetic warners they got, they have become heedless of them. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran al-Kareem that لَقَدْ حَقَّ ala أَكْثَرِهِمْ فَهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ That verily we have put the haqq of the call, the truth of the statement has come on them, but أَكْثَرِهِمْ فَهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ The majority of them you will find that they do not believe. This was the state in Makkah at that time. And this has been the state ever since the time of the Prophet up till now. Ever for 1429 years, the majority of human beings on earth have been non-Muslim. Right? So sometimes a person will say, well, okay, well, if Islam is true, why is that the majority of people on earth are Muslim? Right? Allah SWT is making it clear in the Quran that the akhtar of humanity, the majority of humanity is not going to believe. Whether it's the majority of humanity at Makkah Mukarramah, that was the case then, whether it's the majority of the Arab, the total Arabs later on, whether it's the majority of the whole world, any time from that moment up till today. All right. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shifts gears and from verses 8 onwards, verses 8 to about 12, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts talking about the punishment that people will have in Jahannam. So he says here in the Quran, إِنَّا جَأَلْنَا فِي أَعْنَاقِهِمْ أَغْلَالًا That I will put chains, collars, shackles on their neck. فَهِيَا إِلَّا الْأَذْقَانِ فَهُمْ مُقْمَهُونَ And they will not, it's such that they will weigh down so much, they will come down to their chins and they won't be able to raise their eyes. This has been taken, number one, literally, because in another verse that I won't do, in Surah Mu'min, Allah SWT has mentioned this as the punishment of the hellfire. This has also been taken figuratively, that due to their rejection of wahi and nabuwa, due to the rejection of revelation in the prophets, they become chained down in their own little ideology, they get tunnel vision, they get myopic vision, such that they cannot see, they cannot see them around them. Once they choose to reject, then Allah Ta'ala Himself then closes them off. And this is an oft-repeating theme of the Qur'an. In Surah Baqarah, Khatam Allah ala qulubihim, Allah sets a seal on their hearts. When they reject the revelation, they reject the prophecy, they are weighed down by chains, such that their chins are lowered, they cannot raise their eyes, means they cannot perceive the haqq. They are trapped due to the chains of their disbelief or rejection of scripture and revelation. Then Allah says another thing, that we shall raise a barrier in front of them, وَجَعَلْنَا مِنْ بَيْنَ أَيْدِيهِمْ سَدًّا وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِمْ سَدًّا فَأَغْشَيْنَاهُمْ فَهُمْ لَا يُبْسِرُونَ We shall place a barrier in front of them and place a barrier behind them. Right? Such that then they will be, their, their perception, their eyesight will be covered, they will be veiled. Now what is this perception or what is this barrier that's being put in front of them and this barrier being put around behind them? Imam al-Razi, mentions that there are two types of barriers that a person has. One is a barrier they construct for themselves. And the other is the barrier they construct in their surrounding. So what's happening here is that because they reject the scripture and the prophecy, number one, they've constructed a barrier on their heart. They don't wish to believe in Allah Ta'ala's prophet. And as a result of that, then what they do is they construct a barrier in their surrounding. They live in a surrounding or a context or an environment, right? That is devoid of remembrance, worship and obedience. So there are two barriers on them and due to that a ghishawa, a veil and obscurity comes over them. Now this that Allah says such that they will not see. This can be used, it doesn't mean physical sight, it means what we call basirat. They will not have insight, they will not be people of perception. 
they will not be able then with due to this rejection, due to those barriers, they will not be able then to perceive many of the ayat of Allah Ta'ala can come in front of them. Ultimately here the ultimate ayah Rasulullah himself can live amongst them and still they will choose to disbelieve. That is the ultimate you can only imagine how obscure, how thick such a veil would be on a person's qalb that they see the Prophet and they're still not able to take iman. And that's what Al Spantal is saying, and quite rightly so, that this is a magnificent veil and obscurity that has that is come over them. And they've totally lost all of their basirat. Then Al Spantal says, that it is equivalent to you, whether you warn them or not. You've been sent for indar, you've been sent for warning. You've been sent to guide. But this group of people, due to their stubbornness, due to their rejection, due to these barriers and veils, it makes no difference whether you warn them or not. And you will notice their stories in the hadith that the Prophet used to keep trying with Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab. One day there was an extremely big thunderstorm. And he went to the house of Abu Jahl. And he knocked on his door. And Abu Jahl was stunned that who in the world knocks on your door? At this time he opened the door and he saw the Prophet and Rasulullah thought that maybe because the rain has come, the azmat of the rain, the thunder, the lightning, perhaps Abu Jahl's heart would be somehow softened, right? And he tried to do dawah. Abu Jahl shut the door on his face, right? Because again, his heart was closed. His heart was sealed. Then Allah Ta'ala says, who is it that you can warn? Right? So Allah is being clear, your nabuwa is not for those people to keep trying on those people repeatedly who have repeated you even if they happen to be your uncles. Rather, what can you do? That you can warn that person who follows the dhikr. Who follows the dhikr can have many meanings here. Follows the reminder from their Lord. Follows the advice, the nasiha from their Lord. Right? Number two, And that person who has khashiyat of ar-Rahman. And it's amazing that Allah uses this, right? These two words itself are teaching us that the fact that Allah Ta'ala is ar-Rahman does not mean we should lose fear of it. <laughs> That's why he's saying khashiya rahman He could have said khashiya Allah, they fear Allah. So many times people today get this feeling that because Allah Ta'ala is Rahman and Rahim, no need to fear. Because he is, that's our own. Our akal is coming to our own conclusion. So Allah is using the word khashiya rahman bil ghayb They fear Allah Ta'ala secretly, hiddenly. They feel al-Rahman, they feel the merciful one secretly, hiddenly. They feel maybe not getting that mercy, not living up to the mark of that mercy, not being able to attract that mercy, hiddenly and secretly. They fear doing such things that would put them outside the reach of that mercy. They fear that hiddenly and secretly. So two things being mentioned here, ittiba'i zikr and khashiyat al-Rahman. These are the two people, what are such, these two qualities are so noble that Allah is telling the Prophet that you should send your nubuwa to such people. I've sent you as a nabi for such people. Such people should be your murad. Such people should be your matlub, your maqsan. You should send your, uh, devote your gaze and attention to these people. So that means even today, if you and me bring these two attributes to us, then the wahi and nabuwa will seek us out. The Quranic teachings, the prophetic teachings will seek our hearts out if we bring this attitude that we also want to ittiba of the zikr. We also want to follow the admonishment, the reminder, the remembrance. And we also in our heart have the khashiyat of ar-Rahman. We have that fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in an unseen, in a secret way. Okay. Again, al-ghayb is referring to the khashiyat, not to rahman Not that, al- his, that Rahman is the unseen. It's the khashiyat that is unseen of al-Rahman. A person who has those two things, not only should they be warned, not only was the Prophet in Nadir, but he's also a Bashir, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in فَبَشِّرْهُ بِمَغْفِرَةٌ وَأَنْجِلٍ kareem. And not only should you warn such a person, anybody who has these qualities, you should give them glad tidings of an ajan kareem, of a generous, a prodigious reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Allah concludes this passion by saying, That really know that we are that being. This is the royal we. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that being who revives the dead. Not just does he revive their dead, but also he writes down, He writes down all of the things, the deeds that they have sent ahead, and all the legacies they leave behind. This is a very important verse in the Qur'an al-Kareem. In the Sahih of Muslim, the Prophet mentioned, is recorded as saying, that whoever initiates something good, that person who establishes a good sunnah, whoever initiates something good in Islam, will get the reward for it. And the reward for 
all of those people who emulate or follow in his path without it diminishing in their reward in any way. And that person who initiates a sin or an evil will get the sin for it and will get the sin for anyone and everyone who emulates or follows him in the sin without diminishing their sin in any way. So it means there's this notion that people leave athar. Again, when I mentioned that the good athar of the good people are on the Salat al-Mustaqim, people also leave bad athar. Athar literally means footprints. Literally meaning is footprints, but it means you leave behind a legacy. If you leave some good that people take good from, you get the reward for it. A very famous hadith is, Adalu ilal kafa'ilahi. That person who guides to a noble act is as if he's like the actor, right? Without diminishing the thawab of the person who does the act himself, right? This puts an incredible responsibility. All Spanta is saying is, number one, I'm going to resurrect you. Number two, every single thing you did is also going to be resurrected. And number three, the consequences of what you did in your life and however long, whatever those consequences last, good or bad, are also going to be resurrected, are also going to be taken into account on the Day of Judgment. Another day, the Prophet said that there are several things that can benefit a person after they've passed away. Number one is ilmun nafi, a knowledge that he leaves behind that people continue to benefit from. It can be, it doesn't have to be textual, it can be textual, it can be internal, any type of knowledge that they leave behind that a person benefits from that knowledge after they die. Generations of people, like we say these names, Al-Razi, Al-Ghazali, Imam Muslim, these people left behind legacies of knowledge, these are their athar. Right? And we continue to benefit from the second, pious children. It can be children, it can also be taken to mean descendants. Right? It doesn't necessarily have to mean just your kids, but it can be descendants in any generation. Right? It can also mean physical, biological children. It can also have been taken to mean, quote unquote, ruhani shirgid or spiritual, but your, your students or etc. But pious children, so it's their piety. Number one, that was a result due to your tarbiyah or due to the ways you raised them or educated them or taught them. Plus the notion is that their piety will lead them to remember you in their du'as. Right? Because the du'as or a'mal, and this is something that I should mention, this notion of isal al-thawab is haq, and it's ijma' the sunni ulama. That if you perform an act, an a'mal al-salih, reciting Qur'an al-Kareem, praying nafil, some umrah, charity, sadaqah, even fasting, Right? If you perform a nafal act, such like that, and you wish to, you make niyat that you want the sawab of that act to go to somebody who is deceased or somebody who is alive, you can send the sawab onward without it diminishing your own sawab in any way. The Prophet himself on record in hadith has made qurbani for his ummah. He himself performed an act, an extra, not his wajib, after doing his wajib qurbani, he performed an additional qurbani, made niyat that the sawab of this go to his all ummah. He also approved in hadith the notion of hajj badal, that you can perform hajj on the behalf of somebody else, right? Uh, and uh, there are many instances of making dua for those people who have passed away. So two things, ilm, and second thing is pious children or descendants or students. Number third thing that Abu Hurairah mentioned specifically, which is not something that's done that much in this, well it could be done in a modern way, is a copy of the Qur'an, a mushaf of the Qur'an al-Karim. In those days people would write it out, right? And if you wrote out as a scribe or as a calligrapher a copy, Musaf from the Qur'an, then whoever read from the copy that you wrote, you would get the thawab for that, for that recitation. If they recited it without understanding, if they understood it and it changed their life for that understanding. In this day and age you could print or fund or finance or whatever, uh, donate or purchase even really. Somebody else can print it. You could purchase it and donate those copies of the Qur'an al-Kareem somewhere and then that would be beneficial. Number four is a lodge for the travelers. This is something that's non-existent today. But in earlier times, people would actually have, there would be free lodging on the path or on the station or on the stop for the traveler. The fifth thing that is mentioned specifically uh, there is charity. And a charity that benefits, any type of charity. right? Uh, before that was a well. Lodge for travelers, a well from which people draw water to drink, or than any type of charity, as long as it continues to benefit people, or the benefit that it provides continues to last to a person, you will keep getting the thawab for that. This, the list is not exhaustive. When the Prophet says these types of lists, it doesn't mean it's exhaustive. There are many things that aren't mentioned in this list. You build a masjid, write the thawab of that, all the people who pray in that, all the sajdas that go there would continue, right? Etc., uh, etc. Et Similarly, bad deeds. Similarly, a person who does any bad deed or creates evil, leaves an evil ideology, 
leaves a false interpretation of the Qur'an, leaves a false interpretation of the deen, leads one person astray. The whole life that person is astray and anybody else who that person leads astray. All of that dhalala will come on that person. Right? Uh, khair, another way, right, and I'm going to show you a little bit about how, how I'm going to show you how tafsir works a little bit. Another call you will find in some books of tafsir was the staying by Sayyidina Jabir bin Abdullah who mentions a very famous hadith that there was a tribe called the Banu Salma. And the Banu Salma lived a bit far away, slightly at a distance, maybe let's say like a 20-minute walk, imagine, from Masjid Nabu, 20-30 minute walk. And when they accepted Islam, maybe probably 30-40 minute walk, when they accepted Islam, they felt that they should move closer to Masjid Nabu, right? So that they would be closer to the Prophet ﷺ and it would be easier for them to make it to the prayers. The Prophet ﷺ told them that no, it's better that you stay where you are. And in Tafsir Ibn Kathir, he's gathered too many narrations about other groups as well who lived a bit at a distance, who wanted to move closer. And the Prophet ﷺ told them, right, uh, that they should stay where they are because their footprints, their athar, right, are counted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they get so much sawab for every footstep, rather should say footprints, every footstep that they take towards the masjid. So Ibn Kathir, because it, in Ibn Kathir he focuses a lot on these historical narrations, right? Other Mufassars have looked at those narrations and said that that's not the reason this verse was revealed, but rather, and again, why? Something I told in the beginning, that this is a Makki surah. So this verse was revealed in Makkah Mokarama. However, the Prophet recited these words to those people in Medina Manawara later on, right? And saying, look, so this shows the prophetic mode of tafsir as well. That he will take a verse, he was to take a verse and used to apply it, which is called intibaq al-ayah. He used to apply that verse to a setting or context which is not necessarily right, specifically there. This is showing us that we also are supposed to do that. We're supposed to take verses of the Qur'an al-Kareem and apply it to our situations. So somebody might today quote this verse to you. If you're doing something, we'll say, oh Allah Ta'ala preserves your athar, right? means if you're doing something or leaving behind a legacy, good or bad, either to congratulate you or to warn you, a person could quote this verse because the Prophet himself used this verse later to show the people in a literalist way that Allah Ta'ala is keeping record of your footprints. All right? <coughs> then Allah spawns up from 13 to 32, from verses 13 to uh, 31, rather. Allah spawns up mentions a story, which is the first story or kissa of the Surah Yasin. That coin for them the example of the people of a village, a karya, or a city, when some messengers came to them, right? We sent two to them. Two nabis to them. فَكَذَّبُوهُمَا And they did taqzeeb, they falsified them, they refused to believe in them. فَأَزَزْنَا بِثَالِثٍ And then we made them more mu'azzaz, we granted them more izzat, more honor, more strength, those two, by sending a third nabi. فَقَالُوا إِنَّا إِلَيْكُمْ مُرْسَلُونَ Then the three of them together addressed the people of that city, that verily we have been sent as messengers, as mursalun to you. What that city is, you will find too much discussion on this in tafsir. Ruhul Mani, Malam Tanzil, Tafsir Kurtubi, Razi ibn Kasir, going into so many possible historical narrations where they tried to converge on this place which is today called Antioch, right? Uh, which is one of the major cities of Christianity. Some also speculate uh, that uh, these two, that, that these are actually, this was an incident that took place after the time of Islam. But, those reports really are mostly just historical speculation. The Mufassirin mentioned them there, just for the record. Their purpose in compiling these long tafsir was to write down anything that anyone may have come up with and wrote about this particular surah, but they have their ways, and this is another sort of course really, which is the uslub of the Mufassirin. They have certain words and ishanas that they do to indicate that something is strong. Right? And they have other ways of sort of mentioning things that make it clear they're just mentioning it by way of mentioning it. So the more precautionary stance has been that Allah knows best which city that was. And the messages that Allah Ta'ala and the lessons we're supposed to get from this would not be affected in any way by whether this took place before the time of uh, Isa or whether this took place after his time, what the city it was. It doesn't really make a difference. Right? Uh, however, uh, what happens here is that what is the reply to these people? So the people tell those messengers that Kalu ma antum illa bashanum mithlana that you are just men like us. 
you are nothing more than human beings like we are. وَمَا أَنزَلَ الرَّحْمَانِ That Ar-Rahman has not sent you or anything that you claim to bring. Min shay'in, Allah has not sent anything. In antum illa taqdibun That you are nothing but liars. You are speaking only but lies. Alright? Now, this is something similar, right? To what's going on in Makkah Mukarramah to the Prophet Sallallahu Allah Ta'ala is coining the story number one to give tasalli to Rasulullah also to the Sahaba who had become believers at that point. And again, also to show that this is human nature, this is humanity. Humanity, akthar of them reject the truth. The majority of them repudiate so much so than you can imagine. And, and when you look in this day and age, and sometimes people ingenuinely, sometimes really when one looks in the situation out there, a person gets sad. And thinks, that, well, what's going on? Why is it that so many Muslims have rejected the Sunnah or the Qur'an? Why is it there's so many human beings who rejected goodness in the Qur'an, right? Well, you realize when you look at all these stories in the Qur'an al-Karim that this is the history of humanity. This is the history of humanity that people reject. People don't believe, right? Uh, people say that there's just a human being. And this statement that you're just a human being like us, right? This can be used in many other ways, right? Uh, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is uh, giving some tasalli to the Prophet some the Sahaba and maybe to the whole ummah, right? So these messengers, how do they respond? They said again, that verily our Rabb knows truly that we have been sent to you as messengers. And it is not upon us to do anything except the belong. Our job is just to deliver this message to you. And in our view, this message is mubin. It is clear, it is manifest. Right? So for us, it's a manifest truth. For you, you seem to think that this is an evil omen. This is what they respond in uh, verse number 18. We feel an evil omen coming for you. We, they had their own view that there is some evil or a bad omen coming from them. And then they say to them, If you do not desist from trying to call us to this rub, We will do rajam on you. We will stone you to death. We will stone you to death. And on top of that, not only will we start stoning you, we will inflict upon you a terrible punishment. That's amazing here, these words, adabun alim. These are words you find elsewhere that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses for people. This group of people were so, right, against these anbiya, three nabis who came to them, that they threatened to stone them to death, and they used words, which really actually are words that the divine would use, we will inflict on you an adabun alim. You can imagine then what's going to happen to these people, right? So, then again, the messengers say again, right? That they say that your evil omen that you're talking about, this misfortune is an outcome of your own deeds. Some commentators mention that these people were suffering at that time. They were suffering like a period of famine, some type of difficulty. And they felt that this diff- and when they saw these three people, they blamed their difficulty on them. I'll just skip back here. I made a mention of this in Surah Al-Araf, Surah number 7, verse number 131. Allah I'll just read this in English. Allah mentions that the people do the same thing with Musa Islam. The people of the Fra'an, when good came their way, they said, it is our due. But when evil and misfortune befell them, they put that omen, they attributed that evil and misfortune to Musa Islam and those who were with them. So this is something that people have been doing historically, that they attribute their evil and misfortune to the Anbiya. So that's what these people did. So they said, no, that your misfortune is an outcome of your own deeds. Surely you are having an evil, but this omen or this warning or this misfortune that has come onto you is your own deeds. Verily you are a qawm that is musrifun. You are people who went to israf. You went into excess in denying the ni'mas of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then they asked them, وَجَاءَ مِنْ أَقْسَلْ مَدِينَةِ رَجُلٌ then a person came, right? So let me just read this to you quickly in English and then I'll just comment on it. A, per- a man came from running from the other side of the city. He said, Oh my people, follow these messengers. Follow them who do not ask for any monetary compensation from you and who are rightly guided. Then he addresses them and he says, Why should I not worship him who brought me into being, to whom you will be brought back in the end? Should I take other gods apart from him who would neither be able to intercede for me nor save me if Ar-Rahman brings me harm? In that case, I would surely be in clear error. I believe in your your Lord, so listen to me. 
Then it was said to him, Enter Jannah. And he said, If only my people knew how my Lord has forgiven me and made me one of those who are honored. Then the dialogue ends and Allah Ta'ala says, We did not send down any army against this qawm from heaven, nor did we need have need to send one. There was just one blast or one shrill noise and they were extinguished. Alas for men, no messenger ever came to them, but they made fun of him. Have they not seen how many generations have we destroyed before them who will not return again? Alright. What happened over here? This person who came from the far end of the town. Not a prophet. These three prophets came. He's a believer. Now how did he believe? Mufassir say that when the first two came, right? This person believed in the first two. Right? This person took iman on the first two. He didn't wait for them or need for them to be strengthened by a third. When he took iman on the first two, he became the first and only believer in this qawm. Some also suggest that that's because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has never sent a Nabi who has not had any follower. Right? So the Anbiya, every Nabi who was sent who has had, and this is the case where these Anbiya had one follower. So this person accepted those two. Right? Now when he saw that they'd come back with a third and he saw that his qawm was addressing them that oh we don't believe in you, you're a bad omen, we're going to stone you, we're going to afflict upon you an azab and alim. So he rushed forth to them and said that accept these people. Right? But the way he does so is is really amazing. Right? And I remember I'll come back to that at the end but the, the words that he particularly uses right, uh, to do so. So here when he does that, this phrase, all of a sudden the dialogue stops and it said enter Jannah. <coughs> So what happens here is mentioned in the books of Tafsir that this person was then martyred. That what they did is they turned on him, Abdul bin Masood and narrates that he was stoned to death or he was trampled to death. Right? So they turned on him and they killed him. Then a voice came which said, Enter Jannah. Now whether this means that he was made to enter Jannah directly, instantaneously, or whether he was given the glad tidings of Jannah, right? And he will enter Jannah after the whole day of judgment like everybody else will. Allahu Alam. But this voice came. And at that moment, then what did he say? He said, if only my people knew how my Lord has forgiven me and made me one of those who were honored. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that he sends an azab and adim himself on these people through one blast when he's saying, I don't need an army. The ishara here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't always need to send the angels, such as he didn't bother. Right? He can sometimes send the angels. He may sometimes use asbab. Sometimes matters may proceed to such an extent that he may directly send azab without using any sabab, right? But the notion of the coming of that asbab is one loud, shrill noise. Some may take it to be the noise of an earthquake. Some may take it to be noise of some thunder, something that took over them, right? Uh, and then this whole, and there's this word here in Arabic, khamidun, which I translated for you as extinguished. The proper translation is extinguished. Khamidun, it's a very strong word in Arabic. It means like their life force was snuffed out. They were snuffed out of existence. Right? That's what Allah is saying. So when this punishment came, they were snuffed out from existence. And then he comments on them. And it's a very interesting word here. This I will have to, I just, it's a word for you to hear in Arabic. Ya hasratan alal ibad. And the Mufassir of commentary, can Allah Ta'ala experience hasrat? Right? They had to go into this, this theological issue. Can the divine being feel hasrat? I'm sticking to that word because you have the same Urdu word that you have in Arabic. Some of us say that no, in the sense that me and you feel hasrat, Allah Ta'ala is beyond hasrat. Why? Because he's beyond need. He is mustaghni. He has no need for, these, for, for this community to have worshipped him or to have believed him. So actually some say this is a hikayah. In other words, Allah SWT is saying that we should say this saying. We should say we should be feeling. Our emotional state should be at this moment. That ya hasrat al-ibad. That we should have hasrat on the people there. Ibad. He's still referring to him as ibad. That they are actually, they don't realize their identity as the servants of Allah. And you will feel this hasrat now within Muslims. You mean a Muslim who has lost his identity, a Muslim who is distant from his Lord, and you have hasrat on them. You have hasrat on al-ibad. That what is it about this person? That they don't realize that they are Abdullah. What is it about this person? That they don't realize that they are a follower of Rasulullah. What is it about this person? She doesn't realize that she's a daughter of a Makhrija. She doesn't carry herself like she's a daughter of a Maisha. Right? Rather she's following the fashion or the women or the models or the actresses or the singers of this age. What is it about this boy that he doesn't realize he's the spiritual son of Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina Ali, Sayyidina Uthman, right? But rather he walks around as if he is the follower of some movie star or cricket player or something else. The Ya Hasrat al-Ibad. And the ultimate Hasrat would obviously be here on those people who saw, who got the opportunity 
such a golden opportunity to meet a Nabi, to be invited by a Nabi to deen, and still rejecting that, right? But if you look at our deen, right, because our Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa is Khatam al-Nabiyin, Khatam al-Mursleen, the last and final perfect messenger. So his Nabuwa is kamal and mukammal. So the reality is that when me and you listen to the Qur'an al-Kareem, and when me and you listen to the teachings of the Prophet and the Hadith, whenever we hear, Qalallahu wa qal Rasulullah, in actuality we are being invited by a Nabi. We are in the same state as these people. We might not be being invited by the Nabi live in physical form, but we are being invited by his teachings to follow the deen. Our rejecting of his teachings is no less repugnant than the rejectings of him in his real life. There's equal uh, repugnance in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Ya Hasrat Alal Ibad. Then Allah says, No messenger ever came to them. وَمَا يَأْتِيهِمْ مِن رَسُولٍ إِلَّا كَانُوا بِهِ يَشْحَزِرُونَ That they used to mock them. Every Nabi has been mocked. It's an amazing world that we live in. <laughs> Every single Nabi has been mocked by human beings. Our Prophet was mocked in his time. He is being mocked today in cartoons. Every single Nabi has been mocked. Strange thing, this human, this creation called insan. <laughs> but alhamdulillah, where their mockery exists, every single Nabi has also had Siddiqeen. Every single Nabi has also been loved and adored and followed. Every single Nabi has had his ushak, his muhibbin. It's a decision for us, right? The decision for us is we wish to be on the path of Abu Bakr and Umar, or do we wish to be in the path of Abu Jahl? That's a decision. There's no decision between hardcore Islam and moderate Islam or orthodox Islam and reformed Islam. That's not the decision. There's one Islam and there's one kufr. It's that simple, right? There's one group, there's the Sahaba. If you want, you can decide, do I like to be like Abu Bakr, like Abu Umar? That can be a decision for you. A woman can say, would I like to pattern myself after Amma Aisha or Amma Khadija or Bibi Fatima? That can, the decision lies within the Sahaba. Never ever should we look at the Sahaba and then compare non-Muslim ideologies and try to put ourselves somewhere in between. That is not the middle path. The middle path is not, when Islam says it's a middle path, it doesn't mean it's a middle path between Sahaba and secularism. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean it's a middle path between Sahaba and atheism, or between Sahaba and modernism. No, Islam is a middle path means that the path of the Sahaba is a middle path. That path is a middle path between different types of extremes. Right? Then Allah subhanahu wa says, do they not see, now this is specifically addressed to the Quraysh, that have they not seen how many generations we have destroyed before them who will not return again? Have they not seen in one sense in the Quran, Allah ta'ala mentioned so many communities that did exactly what the Kufar Quraysh are trying to do, which is to disbelieve in the messenger of the time. And Allah mentions in the Quran their destruction. Do the Quraysh not see, do they not ponder reflective on this? It can also be taken literally that in the Quraysh and their travels, did they not see the Madain, did they not see the relics or the ruins of the civilizations of Ad and Thamud, for example, and others perhaps that may be alluded to in Quran, maybe we don't even know. Don't they notice that? Don't they see that? Don't they see the relics of, if nothing else, communities long since gone? That no community will last forever because the Quraysh had a certain ta'asub, a certain takabur, that they felt that they were the most noble clan of the Arabs, the most noble tribe. Right? And therefore, they're, you know, they're, they themselves have an eternality, so to speak, and they're being Quraysh. So don't they see that every kingdom comes to an end when they travel? This is as far as I'm going to go today, but I want to comment on some of the lessons that we can extract from this. Right? Like we did in Surah Kaf, I mentioned, okay, this won't be that as many lessons as that story, the story of Musa and Khizr that we did last time. Uh, but a few lessons from over here. Number one is from this story, that Allah Ta'ala sends messengers, right? So this is the notion here, Allah Ta'ala is making it clear, when He says that we sent every community a warner, like I mentioned in the beginning of Yasin. And the story He gives to that, the story He gives to reinforce that, is a case in history when He sent a prophetic warner. So this story itself is also reaffirming the fact that the Prophet is a prophet, and he's a prophetic warner, because the story being mentioned in this context is a story of past prophetic warners. The second lesson is that sometimes you need to work on people in groups. <laughs> right? You need to do da'wah in groups. You have examples of one, which is Isa alayhi salam. You have examples of two, Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, Sayyidina Hawun alayhi salam. And you have example here of three anbiya. So the notion is when two aren't enough, try with a third. I mean, it actually didn't 
help in this particular case, unfortunately, right? But Allah Ta'ala sends another one, right? So that means that sometimes if one person is not able to convince someone, then two people should try. Sometimes three people should try. Sometimes individually, sometimes together. So it's a general lesson when you want to work on someone and invite them to the deen. Sometimes it's better if two or three of you go together. Right? Notwithstanding, however, that certainly we have examples of two and one person. The second thing, right, is that if you're not able to invite someone, you don't have that level, you're not strong enough, you don't have enough ilm, you're not bold enough, you're not confident enough. Well, at least when you see other people inviting somebody to the deen, then that, that person who came from far in the city, you should come in and try to help. Try to help in the process. If you cannot initiate the process, you cannot be the da'i yourself. But if you see the da'wah going on, try to help. Right? And that is what that person did. Third thing is that, and look what he mentions, and the words of this person are amazing. Right? When he comes in. So what does he say? He says, Oh my people, follow the messengers. Why? Number one, follow those who do not ask any monetary compensation for you. So the notion here is that there are several, I'll just mention the citation 3447 and 3886, two other verses where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this theme. But the prophets aren't here for money. They're not here for dunya. You're not going to be able to buy them off. Right? As the kuffar tried, they, they called the prophets and said, look, what is it that you want? You want to be king, we'll make you king. You want women, we'll marry you off to whichever woman you say. He said, there's nothing. You could put the whole moon and sun in my hand and I would not give up the mission with which I have been charged. Right? So this person, and this shows you why he is a Siddiq. Right? This was the Siddiq of those Anbiya. He saw, right, with his own truth, he saw the truth of these messengers. And they're not here for the dunya. They're not come here to take your dunya from you, which is so precious to you, O people. Right? Number three, he says that, and not only does he say they're not taking, but they are also rightly guided. So this suggests that in order to do da'wah, you have to be in hidayah yourself. You have to, number number one, you should not have any dunyavi gharas when you try to invite somebody towards the deen. And number two, you yourself have to be in hidayah. You have to make sure you guide yourself before you're able to guide someone else. Much to think about. Much to think about. Right? Number four, is the way this person talked, and I really, unfortunately, I cannot, don't have the, the multimedia today to show you. Look at the way, I'll just repeat this for you. What does he say? He goes to them and says, why should I not worship? He doesn't say, why should you not worship? He says, why should I not worship? So first he's actually proclaiming himself as a believer now openly, which is a major step for him, which he probably hadn't done before, otherwise they would have stoned him earlier, right? He's proclaiming, he's coming forth at of his iman. Sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes proclaiming your iman in front of others, you can do that with the intention that hopefully that may jumpstart them. Another way people have understood is he's not addressing them. He's taking a more subtle approach. Instead of saying, why should you, you should do this, you should do this. He's saying, look, why should I not? Addressing himself, right? Showing his journey. Why should I not worship him who brought me into being? <coughs> Meaning that so they should all think the same thing about themselves. That, yeah, why should I also not worship that person who brought me into being? He's trying to work on them very subtly, right? But then he switches gears to whom you will be brought back in the end. So he lures them into it. Why should I not worship that being who brought me into being and to whom you will be brought back? Allah Akbar. Ajeeb andas, right? And obviously, for your alfaz to be made part of the Qur'an al-Kareem, for the words of your da'wah, what type of da'i is this? That the words in which he chose to make da'wah, Allah Ta'ala accepted them to be part of his Qur'an al-Kareem, to be inscribed in the law al-Mahfuz, to be recited by millions and millions of believers for the end of time. Allahu Akbar, this is some mukhlas da'i, right? Some true siddiq, it shows you the maqam of the siddiqeen. Shows you the maqam of a person who is a true follower of a Nabi. So again, why should I not worship him who brought me into being to whom you will be brought back in the end? Then again, should I take other gods apart from him who would neither be able to help me or save me if Ar-Rahman brings me harm? So now you have that rabd back here. Khashya Ar-Rahman. Allah Ta'ala was referred to as Ar-Rahman. Now this da'i is also referring to Allah Ta'ala's Ar-Rahman. So you also know that this is a continuous teaching of previous anbiya, previous communities. That Allah Ta'ala always revealed Himself to people that I am Ar-Rahman. Right? But again, right? How can it not save me? It's worth it to read this part for you in Arabic actually. Right? Uh, 
So can I take an Allah and other God if, right, Ar-Rahman brings me some harm? So the notion here, number one, that you have to fear Ar-Rahman. That Allah Ta'ala being Ar-Rahman does not mean that you cannot fear Him. And secondly, that Allah Ta'ala being Ar-Rahman does not mean that He can punish you. Does not mean that He cannot punish you. The dharr is being mentioned here is coming from Ar-Rahman. So that same being that is Ar-Rahman, the way, how does Ar-Rahman deal with the people of disbelief? The way Ar-Rahman deals with the people of disbelief is punishment. Right? So that is what he's saying. The next thing, this is his hikmat bar, that he refers to himself, but then he refers to them, and then in the end he does an ishara. In that case, I would surely be in clear error. And then he says to them at the end, I believe in your Lord. I believe in Rabbukum, in your Lord. So telling those people that he's also your Lord. It's just a question of whether you've chosen to believe in him or not. It's not a question of whether Allah is your Rabb or not. That's guaranteed. It's a question whether you believe in whether he is your Rabb or not. Right? So I believe in your Rabb. So listen to me. Inni amantu bi Rabbikum fasma'uni. I believe in your Rabb. So listen to me. At that moment, then he stops. At that moment, he is killed. They kill him. Right? He kills him, then he hears his voice again. It was said to him, Enter Jannah, Kilub Khulil Jannah. Right? These are such people. Such as the Nabi and a person who is true to the prophetic teachings. Same today. A person who is as Siddiq with the Sunnah of the Prophet can also hear this, Anan Kili Ud Khulil Jannah. He can also be told to enter Jannah. Ya Ayyuhatun Nafsul Mutmainna, Ilji ila Rabbiki Radiyatan Mardiya. A person who makes himself or herself mutmin on the deen, mutmin on the sunnah, will also get this pigham from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that return to your Rabb, in a state that you are pleased with him and he is pleased with you. Now when he does this, look at this, I mean it's amazing, this person, right? Look at the dard he has. After getting this proclamation of entering Jannah, he still has fikr. I can't say fikr for his ummah, he's not a nabi, he still has fikr for his qawm, his fellow qawm, that if only my people knew how my Rabb has forgiven me, and made me amongst the people who were honored. Right? So he's remembering. Right? وَجَعَلَنِي مِنَ الْمُكْرَمِينَ The karam that he's given to me. Now, this is, this is another reason the story is here. That we have to make ourselves have so much fikr and dard for the people of our qawm. For the people from our ummah. Right? This much dard that even if we get Jannah, even if we get the proclamation of Jannah, we're still worried. Right? That's the Siddiq brings himself to Nubuah. This is what we say right in Tasawwuf that Nubuwa is greater than Wilaya, that Baka is greater than Fana. This is Baka, that you always remember the people, you remember the Ummah, you remember the Qawm. Simply being granted salvation yourself is not sufficient. It doesn't, it doesn't take away that dart from your heart, right? He's getting the Jannah and he's still away. And the people murdered him. And they murdered him cruelly, but he's so kind, so forgiving, still so loving for them that he's worried about them and wished that if only they could see this mercy. They could see this forgiveness of Allah. And he doesn't, he doesn't say Allah rewarded me. Even look at the asloob here. That Allah Ta'ala forgave me. He's referring to whatever he must have done before he accepted Imam. He doesn't say I've been rewarded for this. I've been granted what was my due. Whatever I got, I got this Jannah out of forgiveness. This is an incredible person, incredible teacher. And it's obviously incredible Quran al-Kareem and incredible Yasin. So whether it's the statements of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whether it's the actions or words of this person that Allah Ta'ala has recorded and made part of his sifat, his divine kilam. There's incredible amount for us to learn from the Surah Yasin. May Allah Ta'ala enable all of us to be people who read it, recite it, ponder it over it regularly, but who live it deeply, who internalize it ultimately, who once we hear and learn some lesson from it, that lesson becomes inseparable from our life. Once we become rectified and we become corrected by it, that wrong and that ill can never return to our life. Wa akhirul da'wana. Anilhamdulillahi rabbil alamin.